The following special bonus episode of the Whiskey Topic Podcast is brought to you by Johnny Walker. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof, now we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four, one, two, three, four. Welcome to the Whiskey Topic. I am so excited to continue on this education series uh, sponsored by Johnny Walker. And we are back with Ryan Goldman. Welcome back, Ryan. Thanks, Mark. Um, so today, uh, so when we did the last podcast, we kind of talked about what is whiskey. And, you know, we, we decided uh, whiskey was anything that's fermented and distilled from any sort of cereal grain, whether that be quinoa or, or barley or corn or rye. Um, and different countries have a different definition of whiskey. Today, we're going to talk about the history of whiskey making from around the world. Cool. Yeah, I, um, I, li- I like the stories here. Like, I, I think that these stories get told a lot. I mean, I think, you know, you've, you've probably heard your, your own version of the story. When I, when I was writing the book, The Whiskey Cabinet, uh, my biggest challenge was I've heard so many different versions of how whiskey was invented that right. yeah. I, um, I was like, wait, y- y- you get this kind of moment of like, oh, you're used to repeating things over and over again. And then you're like, wait, it's going to be written down on paper forever and ever and ever. Um, and then you get yeah. very paranoid about what you hear. I better get this right. I hope this isn't just some wild tale. Exactly. And even even with that level of certainty, I still got a couple of things wrong. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try to explain this as best we can. So we're talking about whiskey, right? Right. Um, and whiskey is kind of universally believed to have been invented in the 14 or 1500s. In the 1400s, essentially. Uh in either Ireland or Scotland, depending on who you ask. So what we're going to do, Brian, I think last time what we did when we talked about whiskey, we started 12,000 years before today's right, date. Did, yeah. 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 <laughs> so when we're going to talk about scotch and, and scotch whiskey and whiskey, we're going to start in Italy in the 13th century. Does that sound good? Okay. Okay. Well, it's 700 yeah, years. Yeah. That's a little, you know, I remember yeah. that area a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little, it's a different country and it's a different era, but I, I think we get very excited about this concept of whiskey and whiskey making uh, and where it all started. And I think undoubtedly Scotland has had this huge influence over the whiskey we drink today, over, over Scotch whiskey, certainly, uh, but even over Irish whiskey, and, and I'll explain that a little later. Um, but the interesting thing is the concept of distillation. Um, you know, we talked earlier, we said, well, it's really started, you know, people were making perfumes and for isolating perfumes and all that. But what it really st- seems to have started with this uh, in the monasteries in Italy, where whiskey was seen as uh, as medicinal. So, you know, you, you had a monastery and they distilled uh, beer uh, to create, or actually that time in the 13th century, they weren't even thinking beer, they were actually distilling wine. So they were taking grapes that have been fermented and, and were probably going to spoil and they decided to distill them so that they would have what we would term today a brandy. Right. A medicinal brandy. It's very important to note that, that it, was a, it was made for, for medicinal reasons. And so in Italy, they, they made brandy. And when, you know, uh, you know in, in, as, the, as monasteries uh, traveled across Europe, as it's believed, you know, there's definitely influences both in Ireland and in Scotland of the, tor- the sort of products that were being drank. But brandy was really very, very popular. Now, even at that time, uh, and they were talking, you know, the... the 17, 1800s, uh, 15, 1600s even, um, it wasn't the only thing people were distilling because we have, you know, we, we go back to the farmers and far- farmers grew 
grapes. Uh, even here in Canada, you know, the, the original settlers uh, grew wine uh, as well as corn and as well as rye. So, so grapes were grown by many farmers. They had very diversified farms. Um, but they also, uh, but that was true also in Scotland and Ireland and, and all over Europe. But so a lot of farmers used, made whiskey distilled out of whatever they have left over. So that could have been corn. That could have been oats. Um, probably wasn't quinoa, but definitely barley. Um, but also typically grapes because there's a lot of sugar in grapes. The yeast loves grapes. So that it's easy to ferment. It's easy to distill. Um, it was just one of those products that was everywhere. That makes sense? Yeah. Plus, it's, I hear it's, it's a lot of fun to squish grapes with your feet. I think that was a big part. Of yeah, it. the whole squishing of the grapes, right? We like it's a very important part of the process because with grapes you squish them so that you want to release the sugars and you want to break the skin of the grape. So then you want the natural yeast that's all around us. You want that yeast uh, to 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 find the sugars and right. then just naturally ferment in those wooden buckets. It's a very it's very romanticized, uh, um, and and you can see that just that's something people would do. It's a fun fun time in the season. People yeah. would squish grapes. It's awesome. Um, barley not so fun to step on. No. I, um, I don't know if you tried stepping on barley, but, you know, so it, it gets between your toes, gets under your nails. It's, I, it's not, not the fun. same sensation, you know. I, no. I've never no. enjoyed that. I mean, and then wet barley. Who wants to think about slogging through wet barley? Also not, not very fun. And also not necessary, right? Because we, we, we don't um, – barley, the skins aren't going to crack or, or, or crunch under our weight. Um, so, so we go through a whole, a whole malting process. But um, the idea is that um, distillation – and so when we're talking distillation, we're talking – you know, they didn't have, oh, this is brandy, this is whiskey, this is scotch whiskey. A lot of that didn't really exist back then. They simply made a spirit. It was distilled out of whatever products they had on the farm. They probably had grapes and corn together. Why not? Uh, for whatever that was left over. And during distillation, and uh, they got created a spirit, and then they put it in barrels because that's how everything was stored back then. You would store your beer in barrels. You would store, you know, your your fish fish stock or fermented products in barrels. You would store your spirit in barrels. So. Um, that largely um, that was largely how things were done. The the big change. So even though we had Scotch whiskey in the 1800s, the biggest change in uh, whiskey industry was 1880. Now, do you know, remember what happened in 1880? Not like it was yesterday, anyway. Yeah, there's not a big historical reference here. It's um, I, and I'm going to get this completely wrong, but um, there was a disease that hit the uh, French wine industry. It's called phylloxera, 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 um, okay. and it ruined 90 percent of the grape harvests around Europe. It, it literally just devastated the the warm fi- uh, the fields, um, and because of that, um, the wine industry it took the wine industry met a lot of decades to recover from it, um, but also because of that, that meant like a lot of fields that, you know, used to have these farmers that used to have both grapes and barley and corn on their field. They, they just gave up on the wine. Their, their, their vines were done. They, they no longer needed, you know, they, they just no longer went back to that. So while French of France, of course, went back to making wine, um, a lot of other parts of Europe did not. And in the UK, uh, farmers had plenty of grain, had plenty of barley, and that is what they primarily made. And so they focused maybe more on making whiskey, um, than they did on, making brandy and I think that's interesting because I think whiskey I mean I think a lot of people like brandy and brandy's great but I think you know whiskey has a certain uh, it's not as sweet it doesn't come out as strong it has a more subtle flavor so it just it always works a little bit better with that oak aging and so you have this 
uh, this historical time for the whiskey industry where, you know, the wine, wine's devastated, brandy industry is done, at least temporarily, uh, but whiskey really starts to take over. Right, okay. So during this time, the uh, so there's a couple of things that, that really changed too. Whiskey wasn't always very legal. And so in 1725, um, there was a tax code that was introduced that essentially shut down all production of whiskey in Scotland. And the tax code was really there um, because, you know, again, there's kind of the per- perception that whiskey was bad or, or there's, a, there's that negative stereotypes around whiskey. Um, and that meant that a lot of the whiskey that was being produced back then went further underground and so of course you know how this goes if it's underground we go back to farmers uh, uh, making the whiskey and it became very much more of a moonshine I, and a lot of people call that era the Scottish moonshine era because it really was that it was a clear spirit it was barely aged in oak it was done very quickly uh, in farms uh, they, they, they had to hide you know they had to hide it from from authority so it was it was pretty much um, a hidden thing and that that was true for almost uh, almost a century it was in uh, 19, 1823 when the UK uh, legalized distillation, but of course they wanted to tax it. And so that's why you had this um, this introduction of larger whiskey companies because now you made it a taxable item. So now farmers weren't necessarily wanting to be taxed and so they kind of kept off the books. Meanwhile, you had an industry that was now being supported by the government that could create whiskey, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, absolutely. So the... Legalization uh, really changed things around. It was around this time, um, you know, we, we have our friends at Johnny Walker that sponsored this podcast, um, but they, they also have a big part of the story because um, they really, uh, John Walker, the original Johnny Walker, John Walker, um, was born in 1805. So he was kind of born in this era, right. you know, before whiskey became super popular. So before 1880. Um, he was born just before 1823 when it became legalized, but still in that era where farmers made whiskey and it was kind of made a little bit under the table. Um, John Walker's family owned a grocery store and um, they, they primarily sold groceries. But by, by 1825, uh, the grocery store uh, really became known for its whiskey making and for just spirit selling in general. So he sold rum, he sold brandy, he sold, sold gin, and he sold whiskey. This sort of seems like a natural progression if he's you know a grocer at that time would probably have direct contact with uh, farmers and farms and things like that Um, or even indirect maybe I'm not exactly sure the supply chain of uh, grocery stores back in the (laughs) mid 1800s but I would imagine there would be more of a connection I would think that that's how he would be first sort of exposed to uh, whiskey and sort of see its potential uh, before legalization would that be a fair guess? Yeah, that'd be fair guess. Exactly. Like uh, uh, farmers would bring in a barrel of whiskey and they would use it for trade. So typically, you know, they would say, here's a barrel of whiskey and they'll trade grocery goods in exchange for it. So it was it was part of the bartering system back then, certainly. And as you said, all the farmers would bring in their products. And so that meant he had naturally had access to it. Now, a lot of stores at the time and, and, you know, John Walker wasn't the first person to blend whiskey or the only person to blend whiskey. um, But a lot of stores at the time simply um, had a barrel of whiskey and either allowed people to kind of, you know, pour it into a Mickey kind of out of a spout straight from the barrel um, or they would sell barrels, uh, you know, but they, they had a system in place where they would uh, provide that whiskey to clients per, you know, per measure of volume. Um, But the whiskeys, you know, we romanticize old whiskey a lot, but the whiskey back then, it wasn't that 
good. I mean, it was it was briefly aged in barrels, not not very long. There was no legal standard of how long it should need to, need to be aged for. So it may have spent a few months, six months in a barrel. Um, there was no real um, there was no real you know standards of how that whiskey was made. It was typically made in a kitchen, you know, in, in a farmer's kitchen. Um, so so the the process was. Um, was was very artisanal, uh, but that meant it was also very inconsistent. Right. And so what John Walker started to do is he found that if he blended different barrels of whiskey together, or parts of different barrels of whiskey, he could create a better product. And so, you know, if this if one whiskey was a little too sweet and another whiskey was a little too raw, uh, he would blend those together um, and he would create something that was a little more balanced. Um, and, in, and by 1823, uh, interestingly enough, blending uh, grain, uh, so any sort of grain whiskey and malt whiskey together was banned. So he either blended malt whiskeys from, so from, uh, from different places or blended grain whiskey together. Um, but he became known because of this process and he knows the whiskey and he became known as, as making these, this blends, these blends, and they were called Johnny Walker blends. Um, and, and it became so popular that he stopped, the grocery store became passive and secondary and tertiary business. And really the, the, he focused and his sons focused on making blended scotch. Now, is he sort of known as the original master blender? Oh, that's a good question. I, I they didn't have those titles back then, and as far as I know, they it's not something he's been recognized for on that level. But he is certainly recognized as one of the originators of the concept, um, especially because of how large and influential the company became. Um, and it was his son uh, Alec Alec Walker and grandson Alexander Walker II that really. Um, took that concept and expanded it and became uh, it became a larger uh, part of the the portfolio and it really was something that by uh, 1860 was uh, was a pretty big deal and they had their own signature bottle uh, it was the sons that uh, the son rather that developed the square ball that we have today and now around this time too of course you had Canada uh, making their own whiskey and they made you know they made blends of of rye and corn they would add a little bit of wine to their whiskey so so at this point, the, the world of whiskey was really growing. So you had um, Ireland that was that uh, developed the coffee still that made it more uh, made it more efficient uh, ways of making whiskey, um, and that that of course uh, was imported into Scotland. Uh, co- coffee came to St- Scotland and 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 brought that uh, technology there. Because before that, you had really small pot stills. Uh, you had uh, you had less commercial pot stills, but the the coffee stills um, are those uh, typically one or two very long stills. Uh, and they they can uh, they're much more efficient at distilling and and, and more affordable to do, um, so you had a lot of you know a lot of changes in the world when it came to whiskey, um, primarily between Ireland and Scotland and of course uh, U.S. and Canada with Canada introducing rye into whiskey um, and and the U.S. focusing on corn, um, so it was a really exciting part of the world. But um, Scotland um, started to really understand that they're that scotch was a major uh, product that they could export and it became very, uh, very popular um, to the point where a company that like the, the Johnny Walker company in, uh, in the night, just during, during around the time of U.S. prohibition, 1915, they started buying distilleries. Now, that's interesting because by that point you had commercial distilleries that were making their own whiskey and you had a blender that walked in. So they bought, bought Clanellish, they bought uh, Talisker, what's known as Talisker today. Uh, they bought Cardew. Um, in 1923, they bought uh, Mortlock. Um, 
And that's actually funny because that's literally what's in your glass right now. We, right. I, I, we poured Mart Lock 12. Um, and so that was a distillery that the Walker family bought in 1923, um, not because they wanted to make Mart Lock single malt, which is what you're drinking right now, uh, but it's because they wanted to make more blended whiskey. That, that demand for blended whiskey became that big. Right. So it's just sort of a matter of uh, uh, sort of amassing all these different uh, uh, distilleries so that they had the volume to sort of uh, to make a more commercial product. Is that right? That's, that's right. Yeah. And we see the same thing in the, the cognac industry and brandy industry. Like it's very similar where you have a lot of distilleries that are there to support one uh, one product. And so, uh, you know, we had Emma Walker on, on the podcast last time, uh, and she talked about how, you know, all the different profiles from all the different distilleries are there to provide a great tasting profile for the final blend. Um, so I, I, and Mortlock is interesting because, uh, up until, you know, the last couple of decades, Mortlock wasn't really something you got to drink very often because, um, it, it was usually went to Johnny Walker and it went to other blends and it wasn't really uh, released on its own. And sometimes independent bottlers would buy barrels of Mortlock. So, uh, but this is like really known for the, the kind of leather, tobacco, vegetative notes uh, on the nose. And, you know, it's a little sweeter though, right? You kind of get the better scotch, the, the kind, of, kind of all spiciness of it. Yeah, there's sort of like a, a, a creamy kind of, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Creamy, kind of vanilla-y, kind of note. In the yeah, yeah, you get that bit of vanilla from the oak, and it's, it's, it is that kind of kind. It's got that creamy layer, um, um, and you can see how you know Martlock Twelve on its own is it's, it's a terrific single malt. Uh, you know, mm. so with single malt, we uh, from one distillery that's one hundred percent malted barley. Um, but now we take aspects of that from that distillery and we make it into Johnny Walker Black. Uh, that's a blend of both malted barley and other grains and from many other distilleries. Um, so, I mean, you know, this time, this era in that 1920s uh, was a big era because you had the U.S. going to a prohibition. Um, you had Canada that became... Uh, that started really uh, that that oh you know a couple of companies started really buying up all the distilleries. So even in Canada, you had companies buying multiple distilleries along the border with the U.S. because they wanted access to that American clientele. Um, as the U.S. was going to prohibition, and people that made whiskey in the U.S. Uh, were also unhappy at the time because. Um, the whiskey industry there uh, paid for the Civil War. Uh, you know, it, it goes as far back as um, as Washington. Washington had his own distillery, and it, it was believed that uh, you know if you fought on you know if you fought for the Civil War, you got something to the equivalent of four ounces of a spirit. It was could have been a rum, could have been a whiskey. Um, I always say we kind of romanticize what it actually was, but it, it probably didn't matter. It was a product right. that was fermented and distilled and 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 given to you in a flask. Um, and so you had this, you had this, you know, wars in America were paid by whiskey. And then, you know, and in the late 1800s already, uh, certain states went into prohibition. And then, you know, the, of course, the law uh, changed as well to make, um, to, for prohibition that across America. Um, but even before that, the, um, Americans did treat their whiskey very carefully. I always, I love saying this story because I always think this is very interesting. Um, America passed their very first Consumer Protection Act. So the very first one that was passed by, you know, the, the House, the Senate, and the President um, was an act to make 
um, to define what American whiskey was. Uh, they, they called it the Bald, Bottled and Bond Act, where they made sure that the American whiskey was bottled uh, within the same season, and I spent a certain amount of time, a certain amount of years in barrel, and and was made of a certain uh, percentage of of products. So they 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 did that partially because people enjoyed drinking whiskey, but mostly because it was always with the excuse of it's there for medical reasons. And you could see that, right? If without you know without kind of modern medicine and Tylenols and aspirins and all that, um, you you had whiskey that was the painkiller, that right. was anti-inflammatory. Um, your throat was sore. You had whiskey. Tooth you had a sore, cold. Yeah. You snow. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so it really became this. Uh, uh, it just it became and so even during prohibition there was a f- there were a few distilleries that were, remained open to provide whiskey at, with that medical benefit in place right or at least that was the excuse that were was being used at the time yeah i mean I, exactly like it's uh you know we we can certainly draw parallels to today yeah. uh, with with kind of prescriptions but the idea being that that whiskey became very important and um so so johnny walker on that at this point, uh, the, the, actually Alexander Walker that uh, took over the company for his father um, bought up a bunch of distilleries, bought up several distilleries, uh, and became a real power, powerhouse uh, in the industry. And um, you, they literally uh, by 1925 uh, they joined the Distillers Company, which you know was just a, a larger uh, group of distillers. Um, eventually, they merged with uh, they acquired actually uh, Guinness in 1986. Oh. Um, yeah, the Guinness Company and Guinness merged with uh, Grand Metropolitan, uh, which eventually in 1997 became Diageo, and that's the Johnny Walker of today. Um, and that history and the distilleries that they brought with them, the Taliskers, the the Cardus, the the Klein, Klein all these the, the distilleries they brought with them, the Lagavulins, um, were part of this history. And it's such an influential history in the marketplace uh, as far as um, blending Scotch whiskey and, and creating products out of a lot of different distilleries and doing so consistently, which I think what John Walker originally came with. Yeah, and sort of using, and that goes back to uh, uh, that 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 time in history um of sort of trying to make the most of everything but when these acquisitions first happened um and we mentioned uh mortlock uh were they acquired do we know for their capacity to produce whiskey or scotch in general or was it even back then about acquiring something that uh johnny walker felt and the family felt that would add something would add a, a, a you know a, something important to the blend from a, a flavor perspective. Yeah. A, a part of it was, uh, from what we know, part of it was that these were distilleries that they were already purchasing barrels from. So the. The, the industry was far different back then. You look at today's industry, you, th- you think of all the single mall companies, you think of the, you know, the Lagavulins, the Cardos, and, and they're selling their own whiskey uh, from that distillery. But back then, uh, distilleries were seen more as as manufacturing or industry, I guess, really is the best way to put it. They were seen as industrial places where people made whiskey. Um, and certainly the type of whiskey they made, whether it's the shape of the stills or the, where they got the grain from or the water that they used or the climate. Uh, you know the, the altitudes and that kind of thing that affected the kind of whiskey they made uh, the you know how they fermented the, so the so each distillery had its own unique profile which made them more or less attractive depending on on the profile that they produced but at the time distilleries made 
you know, uh, barrels of whiskey, and then they sold those barrels of whiskey to John Walker and to uh, to Johnny Walker and to other companies that just purchased barrels and then and then bottled themselves. You know, you got to think back then the barrels weren't that expensive either, so you would have families that would just go in and just buy you know barrels of Mortlock because why right. not? Um, this will be and our whiskey so you, for the year. Yeah, exactly. The whiskey for the year. So at the time, like you, you had uh, companies that just bought barrels and barrels of whiskey and blending became interesting because uh, typically what they would do is they would take malted barley. So, so like Talisker and Mortlock, for example, they made 100 uh, percent malted barley uh, whiskey, uh, scotch whiskey. But they had other other series that made grain whiskey, usually in a coffee still. And so you would have these. The, so what blenders typically did, did is they took, you know, a percentage of grain whiskey, which was really only there to kind of like add a texture or a mouthfeel to the whiskey and it was meant to be less flavored providing and more uh, as a base layer and then you would add the single or the malted barley whiskey on top uh, to kind of give it that that flavor that we're all familiar with. So this was, um, you know, Johnny Walker did this, other companies did this. This, this was uh, done at a very large scale and at smaller scales, depending on the uh, era and, and that. So so that's, you know, it's just part of that whiskey story. And it's really only the last, you know, 30, 40 years where the scotch industry changed a lot because, um, you know, there were always age statements in whiskey. So, you you know, you, people look back to the 1920s and they'll find a bottle that says, oh, this is an eight-year-old single malt scotch. Um, but the it was really in the 70s and 80s when uh, stocks of whiskey, when people were drinking more vodka and 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 other and gin and that, uh, and Scotch whiskey uh, became less popular. Uh, you had distilleries that just had tons and tons and tons of aging stocks. So one of the ideas was like, well, how do we separate ourselves from whiskey uh, from vodka? Um, and one of the things was that they did is they well we'll put an age statement on it. We'll we'll and it was I mean it was legally there. You had to have every barrel if it says 12 years old on the bottle, it has to have, every barrel has to be aged for 12 years uh, in that barrel. Uh, every whiskey has to be aged for 12 years in that barrel, but um, but that created kind of that more uh, premium price point on it, and and so they they added those age statements, and you had distilleries marketing themselves. Now you know you had big influencers in the in the whiskey world that were selling their own whiskey from their own distillery, um, and you know eventually that became very popular. Um, you know the company that's now Diageo owned. Um, uh, owned uh, many distilleries, but what they did is they they did kind of regional uh, regional flavor profiles based on where the distillery was located, and that really formed the distilleries of today. So, uh, for example, if, I don't know if you if you've heard you know different uh, regions in Scotland, the whiskey might taste a little differently. Really? Okay. Yeah, like they so they'll have like you know well I mean uh, the the space side is a good example. You'll have a lot of space side whiskeys uh, are usually more fruity um, and and dry, and then of course Islay has the smoky uh, scotches, um, and the and that was largely uh, created by the distillers company uh, in their efforts to compete with wine because of course now wine you know in the 1880s uh, wine got decimated, but now in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s and 90s, wine became so popular. So you had your Bordeaux's and, and, and your Merlots and that. And so they were like, well, how do we compete with wine? And the answer was, well, we'll do, we'll create regions. Because, you know, I mean, I, even like, the, so the Bordeaux, Bordeaux, Bordeaux wine used to be produced in the Bordeaux region, which needs to have, you know, 41% Merlot grape, for example. Like there's, there's legal definitions of what a Bordeaux is, and part of it is locked into the region. So Scotland, uh, you know, had single malt sad scotch you know which is a whiskey made in scotland um but then start to define different 
types of whiskeys based on where uh, the region was. So they, 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 you know, picked out five distilleries that they owned and started marketing them as single malt uh, companies or single malt distilleries and making single malts with eight statements on them. And uh, very influential to the whiskeys we drink today. You think of Speyside, you think of Isle, you think of Highlands. They, they all have a flavor profile. Um, uh, you know, some of that is marketing. Some of that is just the whiskey that was made, made at the distillery now, but it just became very influential. It became so influential that like, if you made a space side whiskey, you were expected to be of a certain format and style. Um, but that Scotch whiskey really changed. And the other thing that really changed in Scotch whiskey was, um, if we go back, you know, to the 1800s and 1900s, um, and you, you, we've, we've talked a little bit on the other episode about Pete and how Pete makes the whiskey smoky. Mm-hmm. Um, back in, you know, especially on, uh, around the islands of Scotland, um, but also in Scotland themselves, uh, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of trees per se that you would, that people would just cut down for firewood. Uh, what typically a farmhouse would do is they would use peat moss as a way, as a fuel source. So instead of, you know, putting wood in the fire or in the, in the, uh, in the fire, they would use peat. Um, and so in the same way that peat was dried, it would dry the barley, um, all whiskey, in Scotland was peated to some level. Um, but again, with the 70s, especially where there was an era of clean spirits, you wanted your vodka clean, you wanted your wines, your soft, sweet, very, you know, um, clean spirits, um, the smoky notes of scotch were seen as a negative. And so, you know, the, the scotch industry by that time had already shifted to more natural fuel sources on how to dry the barley. Um, and so really, you know, whether or not it's peated or not is no longer a question of of where that whiskey is located, but rather of how it's, uh, or of whether they want to make a peated whiskey or not. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's kind of the, so that, that was a big influential factor as well, especially when we removed the, uh, like made whiskey less and less peated and kind of stylistic choice. And now it's a little different. Now distilleries that don't make peated whiskey are starting to make peated whiskey for a couple of times a year. And so the industry is literally changing to that. Like, you know, I think that your, your Lagavulin's and the other whiskey we're drinking today is Cardu, which is definitely a little peated, uh, Cardu 12 year old. And that's, um, that's a whiskey that's, uh, you know, that has that peat in it and, and, um, really is as uh known as providing a lot of that peat flavor the smoky flavors from your johnny walker uh from your johnny walker black yet there is sort of a kind of a clean crisp uh uh flavor to it as well yeah it it, it is right because it's just made so um you know it's, it's that whole making process they they want to make it very clean and smooth and 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 tasty there is a little bit of sugar in there you can get well, not actual sugar but just mm-hmm. sugar notes to it um and it's uh it's it's really nice and by the way i should mention this um I, i've talked about this on the podcast before uh diasho is the only company that i know of in the world that has um ingredients for every single product that they make you know their flavored vodkas um and whiskey and I, I like that a lot because you can go in and you can see like oh how much sugar is in cardu 12 and you can go to the website and we'll put a link in the show notes and it's literally zero grams there's no added sugar in the whiskey at all there there, there never is um the only thing that the only sugars that you get the kind of vanilla the sweetness comes from those barrels because the barrels have uh, vanilla in it have some natural sugars in it and and when we char or when we uh, toast them we kind of break them down so we kind of we sweeten them a little bit and so there's there's some sweet notes that come in from the barrels but it's such a small part that it doesn't even register as sugar now that's not necessarily true for very very old whiskeys that 
have spent a lot of time in barrels but i'll tell you you can look at that website and i'll post show notes there's the most i've ever seen of like sugar is uh, 0. Uh, 0. 0.1 grams of sugar and that's again not added sugar it just comes from the natural aging process of the whiskey right. yet there is you know that like you say that sort of sweet flavor that comes from it from that that barrel right with the cardu you definitely sort of get like a you get like a pancake kind of um uh a note you get that yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of thing, and I do find uh, Cardu like like you said, it's a little more floral. It's kind of like a a nice floral uh, thing. It's a little more gentler, um, and I like that a lot. Um, and of course, uh, the the last pour I gave you is of course Johnny Walker Black. Um, so Johnny Walker Black is uh, an influence on Cardu for sure. Um, I don't I don't expect you to kind of taste one and the other and think, oh, this is it, because there's so much more that goes into Johnny Walker. It's not just Cardu Distillery. There's, there's so many other distilleries that go into the final product. It's such a, such a, uh, many more blends. Of, of, of malted barley uh, from distilleries that go into it. But Cardu is certainly uh, has a presence there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mortlock uh, does as well, but more so uh, Mortlock is, from my understanding, is used more so in the in the more aged products of the Johnny Walker brand. Right. But there's some, you know, crossover. If you're doing a little, you know, Venn diagram between the, the three. Oh, for sure. You can, I think in the middle of that is that sort of sweet, like a vanilla butterscotch kind of uh, uh, palette. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree, yeah. I agree. Um, and that's that's Scotch whiskey today, and um, we didn't talk too much. So Canadian whiskey um, has an interesting history as well. Um, the, the story I love telling about Canadian whiskey is that um, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, the federal, you know, the federal government collected taxes. Uh, this was before we had sales tax, before we had uh, personal income tax. Uh, Two thirds of the money the federal government collected were was from distilleries <laughs> in Canada. Uh, so, so you could just imagine how much money that must have been. Now, of course, the federal government had fewer responsibilities back then. We didn't have universal health care and, and other. You right. know, there was certainly fewer expenses. But the idea being is that entire industry. Uh, was paid for by uh, sorry the entire federal government most of it was paid for by uh, whiskey makers and another side story is the Canada was the now a lot of people think Scotland invented age statements or minimum aging and all that but it was actually Canada Um, Canada uh, created the minimum age statement of one year and it wasn't entirely because uh, this was passed federally and it wasn't and I know, Brian, you probably won't be too surprised by this. It had nothing to do with us as the consumer for the kind of whiskey we drank. Um, it had to do with the fact that Canada was making, Canadian distillers were making so much whiskey, and they're very centralized. There was, there was like several large distilleries in Canada that the people that were collecting taxes couldn't keep track of how much whiskey was being made. So as a check and balance, what they did is they said, okay, you have to age a whiskey for at least a year. They locked down bonding houses and all that. Um, and that way, you know, when the federal government was collecting taxes, they knew exactly how much whiskey was made. Interesting. Um, the, same, yeah, okay. the same was true in Scotland. But uh, that was originally the year statement was one year and then it became two years. And now in Canada, it's three years. Um, Scotland and the U.S., though, not long after, also paged, uh, passed minimum age statements. So uh, in Scotland, it is three years as well and has been for a long time uh, for how much time has spent in the barrels. But originally, it had nothing to do with flavor. It just it had more to do with the collecting of taxes because all things lead back to taxes. Absolutely. Well, it's, it is an interesting thing. I think now we think, you know, one year, two year, three year, 12 year, like we're always measuring in years. Um, but thinking back to when um this product was first barreled you know i don't think anybody would have thought 
let's let this sit around for five years before we try to sell it. You know, that's just sort of counterintuitive. And I think it may have happened here and there um, just out of sort of rules of supply and demand. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's interesting, you know, who would have thought to say, you know, even if we're going to age this, we're going to age this for a period of years, multiple years, as opposed to, uh, you know, months or something. I'm interested to know how that came about. And not all that surprising. It has something to do with, with money. (laughs) <laughs> right. And and I do think a lot of the, you know, if you look at the 1900s, a lot of the old whiskeys, because there were some old bourbons and some old scotches sold back then. Um, but, you know, it, it, a lot of them did have to do with barrels that were simply lost or mishandled or just, you know, somebody because, you know, back then we didn't have the, you know, the computerized ledgering system we do today for every single barrel. Um, and so a lot of that did have to do with accidental. Oh, we found this barrel. Oh, wow. Right. This is stamped. How long has that know, been eight here? Years Ugh. ago here. Right. Um, so that, that, there was a part of that. Um, and certainly I've, I've, I've had some really old, uh, bourbons and scotches from the 1920s. And I have to say, uh, the single malt scotches I've had from 1920s, um, I wouldn't say that they taste better than they do today, but you can definitely taste they're like a little, a uh, little cleaner, a little softer. I, I, I think today's scotch industry and today's whiskey is the best whiskey we've ever had and drank and had the opportunity to drink because, um, it is it is a big business. It is industry. We there's a, a particular clientele, um, and and it's uh, it's culturally very important. And so you know, kind of drinking whiskeys from the past, they've been very nice. Uh, they're they're you know very soft and smooth. I, I have a story of one whiskey that I drank, and it was a bourbon uh, made in Kentucky, and it literally tasted like it's nosed like glue and tasted like glue um and it was a ball that was just opened uh just before and then the person leading the tasting was like oh yeah that that's probably glue it's uh <laughs> they, they said that somehow in the sometimes the manufacturing process the glue from the label touched the cork <laughs> and got into the bottle um I guess what I'm trying to say is the whiskey we make, the whiskey we're having today is the best whiskey we've had in the world ever. It's, it's undoubtedly the best, uh, you know, the best whiskey we've had. Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comparing it back then. And I think it's the evolution of whiskey. I think that history is that evolution of whiskey, you know, with Canadian whiskey uh, using rye as the flavoring agent with um, the bourbon industry going to new oak and creating a unique flavor profile. All these things are, are evolutions of the time for each country. And, and of course, you know, we, we have the Japanese whiskey industry that uh, hugely influenced by scotch. Uh, they, they, they make their whiskey in a similar style to, to, to scotch whiskey. Um, you know, we have uh, other world, the whiskey companies coming through that are hot climate whiskeys. So the industry continues to change and evolve in, in wonderful ways. And, you know, I can talk about whiskey today and in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, it's going to change. Um, and, and that's part of the way the industry works is it's, it's constantly changing with people's palates and preferences and, and, and just, you know, working with, with time and, and, and age. And yeah, and it'll likely be better. As we yeah, as we learn think, right? more, just... and as the sort of our sort of collective palate uh, refines, um, you know that as that process continues to get better and better, and uh, our ability to uh, interpret what um, both average people and sort of enthusiasts like, and being able to deliver that, it gets more and more sophisticated. So it's 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 not a surprise to me that, like you say, today's whiskey is the best whiskey so far 
Yeah, so far. And and I think, too, like, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of got in that con- concept of the best whiskey. But there, there's a reason, you know, if we had one best whiskey, then, then you know, companies would just sell one single malt. They'd be like, Here, here's your single malt. That's it. This is the best, you know. Um, whiskey really is with the mood, with the flavor profile, with the palate. Um, uh, the reason why I have so much variety is because people have so much preferences. So it, it will never get, you know, there's, there are some, you know, places that say, well, we want to make the best whiskey in the world. Um, and, and that's just not, a, not an achievable goal, but it's achievable to create a whiskey that's, you know, broadly accepted as really good or, or broadly enjoyed or, 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 or appreciated. And I think that's part of the reason why we have all these distilleries and all these stories and all this histories, because we're never going to be happy just with one, one, one whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're always going to want to kind of experiment and flavor and taste and try uh, a bunch of different whiskeys. Uh, I'm glad we do, right? Because if we did this podcast and there was just one whiskey <laughs> to drink, you know, you didn't be drinking one whiskey and that's it. We'd be done. And, yeah. and, and that's it. Um, so that the idea that like, we're never quite, you know, we're never quite happy uh but we're also very thrilled with the whiskey we have in our glass in that moment uh that doesn't mean the next day we're not going to drink something different no and i think it's fueled by uh the customer and their sort of desire to continue to explore and continue to um uh, taste new things and and expand what 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 they know and i think an appreciation for that craft i think if we look around in the world there's not a lot of things that we can look at and that uh, haven't sort of been uh, sort of going the other way, where you're trying to find a cheaper way of, of doing it with uh, cheaper ingredients or cheaper materials uh, so that it can become, uh, you know, less expensive and more accessible for, for people. I think, I mean, that'll that's a huge part of, of most industry, but what's nice about this is that there really is an appreciation for, for craft and people are willing to to continue to spend money um, on this, and they're not simply looking for the best value. Um, I mean, I think that is a part of it. I think there's always going to be people that are looking for the best value buy. Like if I want to have, mm-hmm. you know, I set my budget and say I'm going to spend $120 or $60 or $250 and whatever I want to set my sort of budget at, um, but that you're not always just looking for the cheapest option, which in a lot of other cases, if you look in a lot of different industries, that is what people are looking for is how can I get the cheapest thing for the least amount of money or, you know, what will <laughs> sort of tide me over. And if it, if it's not as good, if you look at, you know, furniture now, it's, it's tough to find, uh, you know, solid wood <laughs> furniture. Um, and there is a, it's sort of a, a like a, a divide really. And that it's either one way where you're going, um, you know, high craft, um, mm-hmm. high high price, um, which is a very small small market, or you're going, you know, chipboard and you know a lot of like <laughs> what is the cheapest way we can uh, manufacture every part of this. That's not the case in, in uh, this industry, and I think that bodes well for its its future. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I do think, you know, in a way, governments and distilleries and companies do, um, you know, do treat that whiskey making process. I, intellectual property is probably the wrong word because that implies, you know, trade secrets and, and thing. But there's a there's a there's rules to it. Scotland defines what a Scotch whiskey is. Um, and certainly there's been efficiencies in the whiskey making process. The way we make whiskey today is in the same way as we made it 100 For years sure, ago. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, we talked about this uh, on the first podcast, and and I and I, you know, I've been saying this for uh, since we started the podcast. Um, you know, I've never really liked the term craft whiskey distillery for meaning uh, uh, for a small distillery because I think that craft of whiskey making at the end of the day is looking at barrels and blending them together and creating great whiskeys, and and you can't. You can't replicate that authentic process. You can't get a computer to do it. You can't, you know, you can't get, uh, you can't just blindly pour barrels together and make a whiskey. You that, that there's a craft to that 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 blending craft. Whether you're making single malts or whether you're picking just even a single barrel of whiskey and selling a single barrel of whiskey, which distillers certainly do, um, but even picking out that single barrel of whiskey that's going to meet a certain flavor profile, um, that's going to be an interesting whiskey to drink. Uh, that that alone is is where that craft comes in so you you know we we all there's all this industry involved the way we you know growing the grains transporting the crop uh fermenting distilling and these you know the large columns so there's so much industry in in it um but then at the end of the day there's always there's always people in charge of every step of that that process and um and uh in scotland they'll 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 definitely speak to you in a scottish accent um and uh and then there's that blending process where you you create everything so i think it's, it's pretty wonderful and i uh, no, I, I thought that you put that really well that that's uh that's really great um and i that's all i really had for today i think this is you know nice good look at history and whiskey around the world um you know the um uh i i the concepts that you know, like the, there's there's so much history. We got here because of the past, and all these things happened in the past, and that's how we got here today. And I think I love that part of the story the most. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, this is going to be uh, this is episode three in our series um, uh, in cooperation with Johnny Walker. Uh, we are going to do number four, and uh, you know what? I I think I'm going to like number four a lot because in the next episode we're going to actually be tasting a lot more whiskey. We're going to look at a uh, a few distilleries uh, specifically and do a little bit more about single malts. Uh, then we're going to be making cocktails with scotch. Uh, which I'm really looking forward yeah. to. We're going to have uh, Dante come on and do that. And then we're going to taste some of the more exclusive range from Johnny Walker. And we're going to do a uh, food pairing and scotch uh, show. And that's going to be a lot of fun as well. Very nice. All right, right. Well, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this. Um, I think we should just continue drinking because I'm really enjoying these. Oh, was I supposed to have stopped because? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's continue now. Yeah. Let's continue now. I yes, haven't been that's drinking this next whole time. Drink. I haven't at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Cheers. The preceding episode was brought to you by Johnny Walker.